0: Um, this feels really restraining by the way. Oh man. So um growing up as a kid, um I only remember one Christmas present that I got, like really and I held on to. Um so Every year, I, would, I told you, I would go through the different magazines, watch different shows and write down my big old Christmas list, but my family didn't have a lot of money, so we got, you know, necessities and not what, um, necessarily what we wanted. And so we would get socks and underwear and all the uh, good stuff. And every once in a while I would get, um, you know, different action figures and things like that, but usually they were the, on the cheaper side. You know, if you go into like a dollar store. And it says, you know, this is a Ninja Turtle. And then when you actually look at it, it's like barely a Ninja Turtle. You know, it's, it's a knockoff brand. It's from different places. And, and so, but um, every year I would hope, right? I would build up and hope that um, this year maybe I'll get something really cool. Um, and what's funny is every year I would get something and I would be ecstatic. You know, I'd, I'd be the first one up. And I would have to wait because my parents had a, a rule: coffee goes on at six, uh-huh. presents at seven. You had to; they had to have their coffee before we could have our presents. Probably because without the coffee, they kill us with the presents, <laughs> you know. And so they would. So every year, I had to wait till seven o'clock. Well, I was up at five, and it, you just sit there and wait. Now. Eventually, what I eventually did was I would go there when everyone was asleep and start looking. You know, you develop skills of (laughs) opening packages just enough to see what's in there, right? So that would help um, stop me from opening presents too early. Um, But the only present, like, I remember keeping, and I still have it today. It actually sits in my bedroom, is a little stuffed velveteen rabbit. And his name is Christmas. And I've kept him all these years because it was, this, it was at a time where we changed our lives. Like, we went from uh, living in where I grew up in Stockton, California, to a place called Comanche. And so it was that Christmas. We didn't have a lot because we just moved. And this stuffed rabbit was huge for me. And what's crazy is that rabbit has kept with me until today, I don't even let my kids touch it because I'm like, you're going to ruin this thing that I've had since I was five years old, okay, so it's just there for looks, it's just there to show, you know, to the, the remind me, and what's crazy is that's the aftermath of that Christmas, I remember that Christmas clearer than any other Christmas that was before or after it, I mean, the only other Christmas I remember as clear as that one was our first Christmas here, me and my wife, first Christmas here, and it was just me and her and I bought her a video game, she bought me a video game, and we spent the whole day playing video games. <laughs> and I, I remember that, and that she always brings that up. That was our first Christmas in Quartzsite. You know. um, and so the, the aftermath of Christmas, the Christmas event, is just as important as any part of the Christmas story. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to talk about our third candle in our light, um, three lights uh, series. And we're calling it the ramifications, the candle of or the light of ramifications. And so as we're talking about this light, let's talk about what we've already done in the last two weeks. So the first light that we did was the light of prophecy. And we talked about that's the build up to the story, right? That is the come long expected Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, was expected just when right, and it was, he was expected because of the build-up, because of the prophetic word that God had, of um, all the different prophecies, and it just built up to Christmas, and so people were looking for the the Messiah, and they knew where to find him. We talked about that a little bit last week, but it was just this understanding that here he comes, he's coming. And that buildup was huge. And that buildup was over 1,500 years of the Scripture being written. And so we went through three sections or three categories of prophecies. Uh, We went through the who and the to whom of Jesus being a boy born to a a virgin. We talked about the kingly visitors, the magi coming in, and some of the events that surrounded that. And then we talked about the lineage of who Jesus has to be. He has to come through Abraham. He has to come through David specifically. And he He couldn't be a descendant of Jeconiah because of that curse that we talked about. And so very specific who Jesus had to be um, what lineage he had to go through, and so we talked of all of that about that buildup, that light of prophecy. And then last week we talked about our second light, which the second light is the revealing. It's the Christmas event, and so we kind of took a we stood we stepped back and we went through the big picture of the Christmas story, right? And we went through the the magi seeing the light or seeing the star, and then we moved all the way up to when the family fled to Egypt. And we went through this whole thing and we talked about how there was many people called to see Jesus. There was the Magi, there was the shepherds, there was of course Joseph and Mary, there's Simeon and Anna. And so we saw this, a lot of people were called. But what we also saw was that there was people that should have been there that weren't. And that's the the scribes, the religious uh, teachers. They should have been there. They knew where Jesus was found. Here comes this, this caravan of magi coming in seeking the Messiah, and yet they don't go. And we found out the reason why is because they were disturbed. They were disturbed at the coming of the Messiah. And so we talked about how, you know, it's okay to be disturbed by Jesus because we're in, if we're in sin and Jesus is without sin, then that's a natural disturbance, right? It's the same idea of, In the light and not in the light. If you're asleep and someone flips on the light, that's a natural disturbance to your sleep, right? And so if the greatest light, God himself coming down, shines in the darkness, then that would naturally disturb us. The problem is not that God disturbed, but rather what's the response? If we are disturbed by God, we need to seek after him. We need to go after, we need to say, okay, God, I've been disturbed. You have shown me sin. Therefore, what do I need to do, God? And that's going to Bethlehem. That's going to the Savior. That's saying, okay, only in you can I find peace. Only in you I can find rest. Only in you can I have my sins forgiven. The bad thing is when we're disturbed and then we just shy away from God or we just reject God. That's the bad thing. That's when the disturbance becomes. An eternal disturbance where we're completely separated from God. We're completely gone away from Him. And we never get that reconciliation that Jesus has come for. And so that's what we talked about this last two weeks. So in this last week, we're going to look at some ramifications of the Christmas story. And we're going to look at this in three areas. The first one's going to be in morality. The second one's going to be in social structures. And the third one's going to be in history. Now, the reason why we're doing it this way is because we want to see it. a lot of times we get this idea in our minds that Jesus just came and then Christianity started and the world just went about its business and then we got to where we are today. And that Christianity is just a, a, like a, a footnote in the historical movements of, of man. But the reality is, if you start looking at the trajectory of history, of society and how everything's working, and you'll see at the moment of Christmas, all of a sudden it's like a shattering of a mirror. You know, when you take a mirror, this is what I love to do, when people have things that they want to give away, like mirrors or TVs or... Um, windows is I like to take them out in the desert and shoot them right that is so fun because you can watch the shattering and it's just if it I don't know it's fulfilling to me Amen. you know as a kid who wasn't allowed to break anything I love breaking things <laughs> and so but it's if you look at Jesus's moment when he comes it's a shattering of the world the world changes dramatically and so we're just going to look at three areas just real quick. And so the first area is a change in morality, right? So we have a change in morality. Now, a couple of weeks ago, or last month, I believe it was, we were going through an apologetic series, and we talked about morality, and we focused on children. And I want to bring that up again because it's such a big deal. So there's this guy, and I'll get his name right here. That way I can be correct Um, his name is Evan Andrews he's just a historian and he's just he wrote this little article on um, Sparta and he was talking about children in Sparta and he makes this point when he says this he says infanticide was a disturbingly common act in the ancient world I just want to stop right there why is it disturbing right? Why is it disturbing? I want you to hold on to that question. Why is infanticide disturbing? Okay? But he goes on to say, because he's specifically talking about Sparta, he says, but in Sparta this practice was organized and managed by the state. All Spartan infants were brought before a council of inspectors and examined for physical defects and those who were up to standards were left to die. If a Spartan baby was judged to be unfit for its future duty as a soldier it was most likely abandoned on a nearby hillside. Right? So this was a common practice within Sparta, but infanticide was a common practice throughout the ancient world. And he says it's disturbing. Well, why? If it was such a common practice and it was an accepted practice, then it should have been a disturbing practice, right? In fact, we see in ancient uh, cultures, you have, um, in the Canaan culture, you have the giving of babies to Molech. Um, Right, giving him to his outstretched uh, out arms. And there's this thing where they would party so heavily in order to drown out the screams of the children that were being burned alive on these arms. So why is it disturbing that there's infanticide? It's disturbing because of Jesus. Because God calls us to care for those who are helpless to the children who are helpless he calls us to that that's why we look at these things in the ancient world and go man that's that's disgusting it's disgusting to have children just thrown onto a hillside it's disgusting to just give away children you know it's it's disgusting to just have these children killed why because God says it's disgusting And so in Psalm 82, Psalm 82, 3, we get this. God is calling these, there's these bad judges who are doing evil things. And he says, he calls them to defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. The only reason why that's important is because Jesus came. See, this is written to the Jews and the Jews are in their own little area. And for them, they're going on at the same time as all this infanticide is going on. And they're just going through. They're following as best they can to follow God. Okay. But it's when Jesus comes, He comes, He teaches, He sends out His disciples, and now you have His disciples going everywhere and what ends up happening? The Western world says, this infanticide is disgusting. We need to get rid of that. Children are not just things to be thrown away. They are important things. They're important people. They're persons and they need to be cared for. That comes because Jesus. Not because the world says, oh, we changed our mind. No, it's because of Jesus. It's an aftermath of the Christmas story. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one um, is... A social structure, okay, and we're going to talk about slavery because that has been a huge thing in our society, right? The last several years, um, the aftermath, the um, the things that come from our own history with slavery um, has really been brought up, and really uh, it feels like we're just rehashing old things, right? That we thought we had gone past, but now just it's being brought up. Well, why is it? Why is slavery a problem? Right? Why is it a problem? Because here's another historian. His name is Mark Cartwright. He says one in five people were in some sort of slavery in the ancient world. Okay? So we can just count. One, two, three, four. Ansel is now in slavery. Okay? In Italy, Cartwright earlier said that it's one in three in, in the Italian peninsula. So we would go one, two, and guess what? Back there, you are now in slavery. Okay, that w- It's a common thing. That would be extremely common, right? One in five people were in slavery. One in three people on the Italian peninsula. And Cartwright goes on to say, upon the foundation of forced labor was built the entire edifice of the Roman state. This was a natural thing. Yet, we see when the disciples are going out, we see a desire to start moving away from slavery, especially in the light of Christ. And so this is, if you've never read this um, letter in in the Bible, you really need to. So this letter is called um, Philemon. I always, my wife's around, I always call it Philemon because it drives her nuts (laughs) that I'm saying it wrong. But I do it just to do it. Okay, so if you ever see her, you go, so have you ever read that Philemon? You'll drive her nuts. Okay, but so Paul writes to this person named Philemon, someone that he has interacted with, someone that is a Christian, you know, became a believer through uh, the ministry of Paul, and and it's concerning this this slave. So Philemon, like a lot of people in the ancient Roman world, um, had slaves. And this guy named Onesimus was one of those slaves. Well, Onesimus runs away. For whatever reason, he runs away. Well, that's really bad, right? You runaway slave. Okay. So, but he runs to Paul, and through however it happens, Onesimus becomes a believer too. And so Paul writes this short. It's one chapter letter to Philemon. all right. And I want to read verse 12. So Paul says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would, like, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the Gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do Would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. What Paul just did there was called Philemon, look. He's this Onesimus is greater than just this this social structure of a slave. He's a brother. He's dear. And when he says this part at the end, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord, he just raised up Onesimus. And Paul's basically calling Philemon to release him from slavery. To look on him as... Because what the reality is, Onesimus could go back and Philemon could just beat him. Just outright just... Beat him because he left. Because he's caused problems. He's caused his, his friend Paul problems. You know all this stuff and take it out on Onesimus. And so Paul's saying, "Look, this guy's greater. He's a fellow man, but he's also a brother in Christ. There's freedom here. And so this whole this whole calling of lo- taking a look at slavery and start this is the basis for why." The Western world started moving away this is why if you actually look what's interesting I was um, following this historian one time talking about slavery and he was talking about the the British um, you know conquering where they would go out right during the um, when Britain was the the superpower he was saying that if you map all of these places where they went and they you know led all these places were the first places where slavery was abolished all these colonies made it illegal to have slavery but you know what not everywhere in the world has that you know in asia and africa slavery is an industry like it's out in the open even though maybe it's not it's still out in the open in places like the middle east it's still out in the open even in the Western world, you know, slavery still happens. It's just quieted down. It's not a, it's not legal, and we try to stop it. But there are places in the world where it still happens. But because of Jesus, when people took His coming seriously, and the disciples would go out and and preach the good news that Jesus has come to set us free that started permeating all parts of the world or all parts of society to where now we look at slavery and we go, that's disgusting. But why? It's only because of Jesus. Because it wasn't disgusting for the rest of the world, even now today. In places where the Word of God is not taking hold, we feel that slavery is still an accepted practice. And so we have another aftermath. Jesus, when He comes, He changes social structures. And then the final one I want to talk about today is a change in history. Right? And I want to specifically talk about the United States. Right? Because I think this is like, as far as we're concerned um, in the Western world, um, where we're at now, we're feeling the, the, the wave, the ripple effects of the Christmas story. And so I want to talk about that today because a lot of people look at the United States and they go, well, we're founded on Greco on the Greco-Roman world. And that's what we've been talking about today. Greco-Roman uh, morality, Greco-Roman social structure. Okay. So are we a product of the Greco-Roman world and specifically our government? Okay. And I've heard people say, well, the reason why we give power to the people is because of, the, of Greek democracies, right? Um, and the reason why we're a republic is because of the Roman Republic, okay? The reality is we do have something to borrow from those societies, the idea of democracies um, and the idea of republic. But we're not founded on the Greco-Roman model were founded on biblical principles that took those and said, okay, what is good and what can stop government from being as bad as it can be? I want to share with you two quotes. The first one comes from um, Thomas Jefferson. Right? This is in his 1801 inaugural address. As he's talking, he starts talking about this, and he touches on democracy. Um, And this is actually the, I believe it's the quote where some people say that Thomas Jefferson rejects democracy. Well, in it, he touches on it um, just in passing. And so you'll kind of hear it. Um, He says, though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail. Okay, so that's kind of the democracy's idea that the everyone, you know, the majority wins. So he says, though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable. And the minority possesses their equal rights with equal laws, um, which equal laws must protect and to violate would be oppression. So what he's saying there is, yes, the majority should get their way, but... If it's done by oppressing the minority, then it's not right. But that's exactly what democracy does. It says the majority wins no matter what. And so the Founding Fathers had this disdain for a true democracy. That's why they created the constitutional republic we have. And it drives me nuts every time someone says, we are democracy. No we're not. We have democratic features, but we are a constitutional republic and this government this style of government which the romans didn't have they just had a a pure republic which was run by aristocrats and you know it wasn't really the will of the people but ours was created for a very specific type of person and john adams this is what he said he said because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion okay so just starting off there he's like there is no government that can control the passions of humanity okay there's just none except for the one that is unbridled by morality and religion he says avarice ambition revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a well goes through a net Okay, so basically he's saying, without morality and religion, these things, avarice, ambition, revenge, these things will just break it. And then he says, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Why? Because they based it on the scriptures of the freedom that is found in Christ. On the the idea that someone in power can just do whatever they want, right? I mean, we, we see this. People will get in power and then they think they can do whatever they want, and they start doing whatever they want. And a lot of times people just sweep it under the rug. And so what he's saying is religion and morality keeps those people from destroying the government. But what happens when the whole of the society is no longer seeking religion or morality? What happens? The government will break down because it's not this type of government that these men um, put together was about one thing, and that was to follow biblical principles. And once the society says we don't want anything to do with biblical principles, what ends up happening to the governmental structure? Well, it falls apart. Because it wasn't made for any other type of person than one that sought after biblical principles. And we actually can see that in our society today, right? We can see this. As we move further and further away from biblical principles, we actually see these things returning. Children aren't seen as precious. When we talked about this, we um, a couple weeks ago, slavery is is blinked at. I mean, think about this. They they talk about how when it, the NFL comes to a town, to a town, the sex trafficking like jumps because people are bringing in these. Um, these workers, these sex traffickers are bringing in these, these people from all over the world and they're being used in the United States in our biggest cities. It's, it's happening. As we move away from biblical principles, these things are returning. And the government that was founded on these biblical principles is falling. Why? Because it is a, it's based for only those who seek after the God of the Bible. And so we have places like Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That's a, that's a biblical principle that the founders said is an inal- inalienable right, right? James 1.25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom... This is why the Bible is, is outlawed in a lot of countries. Because it speaks to freedom. This is why during um, the slavery here in the United States that they would actually take out freedom passages out of the Bible and give that Bible to the slaves. So that they would stay in slavery. Why? Because the Bible is a freedom book. It's freedom from sin. And it's freedom in this world. And so you have these these ramifications. But there's even a greater one. And that is the ramification of freedom from sin. Right? That is, okay. It would make sense that if God came to earth. That the earth would be changed. And the greatest way it's been changed is through the forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness is now a core principle of our society. I mean, it's really hard to do, right? It's really hard to forgive people. But when forgiveness reigns, relationships are mended. But when forgiveness is not there, relationships break apart. I, I... couldn't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I haven't talked to my son in, you know, 20 years because of something that happened. We had a lady one time. I was uh, li- lived here. Uh, mom lived here. And it was, lived, I mean, they've lived together. They've spoken a lot. And then we talked about forgiveness one day, and she came up to me afterwards and she said, Yeah, but I can never forgive her for this one thing she did. And I told her, It doesn't matter what you think. If Christ is forgiving you, you must forgive her. And that's hard, but that's the reality because Christ has forgiven so much. My unforgiveness is not a result of the ramifications of Christmas, the forgiveness is. And so every time someone comes to Christ and says, you're right, I'm a sinner and I need, what you have done for me. That's a ramification of Christmas. Every time a believer goes and mends a relationship with their, with their family, that's a ramification of Christmas. And so every aspect of our world comes against the ramifications of Christmas. We get pushed against it all the time. Every time that we ourselves open our Bible, every time we pray, Every time we say Merry Christmas, we're running against and being pressed against the ramifications of Christmas. Every time we change lanes, we live in this country. People that are desiring to come here because there's freedom here. Why? It's because of Christ, it's a result of Christmas. And there's more but we don't have that much time. And so my challenge for you this week is kind of threefold. I don't know if I put all of them up there. Um, it's kind of threefold. The first one is, uh, I challenged you last re- week to read through John 1-14. through 14. So if you are doing that, you got you know a few days left before Christmas uh, to finish that off. All right, so keep going on that. The second one is the light, the candle of ramification. All right? Um, And, you know, in our Advent, our little paper Advent, just finish that one off, the third light. And then the final thing, though, is to start taking an inventory of the world around you. What is a ramification of Christmas? And I'll, I'll tell you right now, give you a little spoiler, that when you start really looking at it, you'll see that... Almost everything around you is a ramification of Christmas. From where you live to what you talk about, the way you say things, especially as a believer, you'll see that man, Christmas impacted here, Christmas impacted here, Christmas is. Your life is full of Christmas, of that moment, of the aftermath of that moment. Why? Because if you've placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior, then every moment of your life is a ramification of that Christmas moment. And so when people say, let's carry the Spirit of the season all year, believer, you have the Spirit all year long. It's called the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you because of Christ. Because when Christ came, lived the perfect life, died the death we deserved, was raised back to life, He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell all of His all of those that would follow him, all of those who would be his disciple. And because of that, the world is shattered. And that's a good thing. And so this this coming week as we're moving towards Christmas. You know, Christmas is on a Saturday this year, right, Jim? Christmas is on a Saturday. Um Let's take time this week and say, okay, what are the things, how has our world been changed by Christmas? When Jesus came, how has this world been changed? Because I'll tell you, it's bigger than what I've given you today. And it's crazy to see when you start looking in history, how the world was going like this, and then Christmas happens, and it just shatters what was happening. And the world was being put back together by God through His Word, through the disciples He sent out to change. Now, that, does that mean the world became perfect? No. But now it has to deal with something. It has to deal with Christ. And that's a good thing. Because to be disturbed by Christ is a good thing. We just need to follow. That's the, that's the way that God wants us to. Alright? So I'm going to pray for us. And we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Lord, I thank you that Jesus came. Jesus, I thank you that you have come, that you cared enough for us to not leave us in our depravity, in our and our disgustingness. And that sin that would that tore us away from you, that just creates darkness around us. I thank you that you came, that you shone your light, that you live that perfect life, that You die that death we deserve, that You raise back. Now anyone that would accept You, accept that reality, we would come and follow. So Jesus, I thank You. I thank You for Christmas. That leads us into Easter. That leads us into eternity. Lord, help us look back on Your first coming to anticipate Your second coming. And thank You for the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. That we are not our own, but we are yours. And through your Holy Spirit, we can have a right relationship with you. And so, Lord, thank you. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.